0: When was the last time that you've been really scared or afraid? I know for some of us, we're afraid of heights. Uh, Some of us are afraid of the dark still. Some of us are afraid of giving speeches or being in a public conversation where you have to talk to people and look them in the eye and share your ideas. Some of us are afraid of flying, especially when during the flight, you experience something like, uh, not tribulation, (laughs) turbulence, (laughs) that was revival. So, yeah, you experience turbulence. I remember the, the worst flight I was ever on. Uh, we were flying through this, this storm, and so the, the plane would drop several feet before it would catch and keep going. That was the most terrifying flying event ever. Um, but that's not uncommon. There's a lot of things that we're afraid of that everyone kind of knows, yeah, we know what that's like, but there are some things that people are afraid of that are just way outside the bounds of what's normal. For instance, some people are afraid of, okay, this is what it's called, and I'll tell you what it is, arachibutrophobia, Arachibutrophobia, which is a fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Anyone got that one here? I know that one's weird. Uh, Alium phobia. Alum phobia. It's a fear of garlic. Fear of garlic. Yeah, I know people are weird. Phobophobia. It's a fear of having a phobia. So it's like it's like meta right there. Uh, here's another one. Sesquipedalophobia. It's a fear of long words. They're really helpful for that one. Uh, geliophobia. It's a fear of laughter. There's <laughs> people that have a fear. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I, don't, I don't know why. A friend one time was laughing so hard he farted. I guess that would be a reason why you <laughs> might fear that. Uh, ophthalomoph- <laughs> Omphilophobia. This is a weird one. It's a fear of belly buttons. Anyone have that fear? I was telling Saturday night crowd, the belly buttons are weird. You ever look at one closely? They're weird. They're weird. Here's another one. Nomophobia. A fear of not having a mobile phone, a nomophobia. And there was another one, I, don't, I forget the name of it, but there was another one called, uh, it was a fear of knees. <laughs> Again, strange things that people are afraid of. So here's the thing. We, we all know what it's like to fear things, more or less, you know, we fear that. Here's a nicer, a nicer image here. We fear uh, heights, we fear spiders, some of us fear knees and, and, you know, not having our phones. But really, when it comes down to it, all of us know what fear is like. The question is not whether fear is gonna happen, but how we deal with fear, what we do with it, and how we best deal with it. Because here's the thing. Uh, you've heard of the term, right fight or flight I told you the story about the guy who punched me in the face when I scared him. That was fight. A lot of us know what it's like to, to experience flight when we're leaving something because we're terrified of that. But there's a third option for Christians. There's a third option for believers that makes everything a whole lot different because you can choose to fight or fly, but there's a better third option for you. The question is not whether you're going to be afraid. It's when you're afraid, how do you get out of the grips of fear? When fear visits your doorstep, do you know how to welcome it in and get rid of it, or are you going to be assaulted and you're going to be left dead and bloody on the floor because fear took advantage of you. When fear paralyzes you, do you know how to get from underneath its grip? That's what this sermon is all about. And that's really what Psalm 27 seeks to answer. David in this Psalm is talking about a time in his life when he knew what it was like to fear. He was afraid of something. And as often as David writes, you you get a sense that he's always encountering uh, foes and enemies. And as the king, I understand that. He always had people coming up against the kingdom, trying to hurt them, trying to disable them. And so David had right and legitimate fears. What we have in this psalm is is really four different tactics for how to deal with that, how to engage with fear in the most uh, beneficial way possible. And let me tell you this, the Bible has a better way of doing this than you do. Whatever your method is right now, this is a better option. So as you pay close attention to what David shows us to do here, I want you to think about something in your mind right now. Okay, here it goes. What are you most afraid of? Take like 10 seconds to think about that. What are you most afraid of? Whatever came to your mind, whatever first pops in your mind, it's probably a good one. The first thing, first thing that came to your mind, the loneliness or being just betrayed or uh, not being cool enough, popular enough, good looking enough, not having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, not making enough money, being whatever it is. I had a dream the other night, actually. Now I think about it. I had a dream of the other night that I was homeless. It's bizarre. I woke up like literally terrified that I wouldn't have a home. Then I was in my comfy bed, but I was terrified. It was weird. Fears are a legitimate experience of the Christian life. Christians are not exempt from this. The question again is how do we deal with it? Here are the four tactics, starting with Psalm 27, uh, verse one. Listen listen to what David says, and then we're gonna pick apart how he's dealing with what he says. This is the first part, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Um, Assail means to come against, attack, um, eat up my flesh. These guys aren't cannibals. It's just a way of expressing the fact that these guys are there to, uh, we have a common way of uh, talking about this, to consume him, you know, to attack, to disable, to disarm him, to uh, kill him. My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Bad guys don't win in this scenario. Verse three, though an army encamp against me, and we saw this when we looked at Psalm 23, David being surrounded by a bunch of terrible guys, he says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. This is kind of a boss way to respond to things like this. This is like, okay, no matter how bad it is, it's being able to say, I, I don't, I'm not afraid at all. Bring, bring your best shot because I know what the scoreboard is going to say. It's going to say, God, a million and enemy zero. I know what's going to happen. Do you respond that way when you're terrified? Probably not. In fact, for most of us, when we're terrified, what ends up happening is we start getting shaky and dowdy, and we start getting flighty, and we start thinking, man, what's going to happen? I'm scared of what my, you know, what my parents are going to do. They're on the rocks right now. They might divorce. I'm scared to get in this terrible grade because I didn't study for it. Whatever it is, here's what you need to do when you're, when you're tempted to be afraid. You ready for this? It's simple, but in, I promise you, it's profound. Here's what David did, and here's what you need to do. You need to take control of your thinking your thinker. Because what ends up happening is that you're, because your mind is sinful and fallen, because your mind is broken, you're going to have straying thoughts. Martin Luther once said he's a famous reformer who broke away from the Catholic church, 15 something. He would say, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. The idea is you may not be able to control what kind of thoughts happen immediately or instinctively, but you can, you, you can dis- disarm those thoughts by saying, I'm not going to engage in that. I'm not going to allow that thought to persist. And again, because your thinker is broken, you need to learn how to change your thinker to say or to think the right things. For instance, how many of you guys know how to play an instrument? A couple of y'all. Yeah, I know a couple of y'all. Great. Okay, here's what you know that one of the worst parts of playing an instrument, in my mind, is having to tune it. I don't like that. I have a guitar. And so whenever you don't play guitar for some time, uh, depending on humidity and the, the age of your strings, the guitar, when you strum it, it's usually out of tune, just a little bit. And so you have to go through. And I'm not really good to tune it by ear. So I have to get my tuner out and I tune it, standard tuning, E-B-G-D-A-E, right? Ring. Sounds just like that. I can, I can try to tune the guitar um, by ear, but I promise you it's not very good. It doesn't sound very good. But here's the thing. All of us are like those guitars. Life happens to us. We need to retune ourselves to the standard because what ends up happening is if we're allowed to play the strings that are in our minds, they're just going to sound like whatever they want to sound like. They're going to be uh, disjointed. They're not going to be harmonious. We need to tune it to the standard on a regular basis. That's the goal of taking God's word and letting it have a transforming effect on the way that we think. We need to tune ourselves to the standard. In fact, we need to learn to play by ear, but more on that. Here's, here's really the way that this practically plays itself out. I told your parents, I think a year ago, maybe two, uh, when I preached in Maine last, I said, you got to learn to preach the truth to yourself. When your brain defaults, and it always does, and by the way, even if you've been raised at Compass for you know, your whole life, I can promise you this. There's a million thoughts that you have every single day that are not good, that are not godly, that don't honor him and basically don't help you. She's prettier than I am. He's got bigger muscles than I do. He's smarter than I am. You, know, you do The, the, the fear, uh, the, what do you call that? Um, inferiority complex, as some people say that. Uh, we, we're, we're all about mental health today. Do you guys see posts on your Insta feeds or whatever you're looking at? You know, uh, we're bringing awareness to mental health and we're trying to relieve anxiety and relieve stress and to talk more about things that shouldn't make us feel like, oh, we're, we're, we're messed up. But here's the truth of the matter, guys. Let's all admit we all have mental health issues. Let's be honest about that. All of us, every single person in this room has mental health issues to use the common vernacular. The question is not whether or not we have it. The question is how do you deal with that? Because here's what I read on the mental health blogs. Here's what I see on the social media posts. Let's bring awareness to it. Let's learn to meditate and let's learn to be copacetic and move on with life. It's not the way it works. All you're doing at best, at best. All you're doing is kind of putting a little bit of foundation over that massive scar, that gaping injury in your heart. The problem is not that we have minor boo-boos that we have to address. The problem is that we have broken hearts and broken minds. And when we try to pretend like that's not the reality, that's not the root issue, we end up just doing superficial fixes that end up doing nothing for us and bring us to despair and, and anger and depression. There was a guy I just found out about recently, last night, actually. One of my, I don't know, I I guess I'd call him a hero of sorts, when I was your age. I was in high school, I looked up to this guy, he wrote books. I was like, oh, this guy's awesome, he writes great stuff. Four days ago, five days ago, he says, um, you know, on his his Insta feed, hey, I just want you guys to know, my wife and I are getting a divorce. Okay. So that was bomb number one. And this guy was known for like being the, the guy, you know, the guy that everyone looks up to. He's godly. He's all these things. Fast forward to, I think, last night or the night before that, he says, oh, and by the way, there's something I didn't mention. I'm leaving the faith. I'm falling away. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer Christian in the, in the most meaningful sense of the term. I'm leaving the faith. I don't know exactly what's happening in that guy's life, All I know is that the older I get, the more I see this happen. People leaving the faith. And I could tell you what what the root issue is. It's always the heart. But this this part right here has a massive impact. Letting the brain run amok and do its own thinking rather than saying, I don't care what you're you're thinking right now. I'm going to change that. I'm going to tell myself the truth. This is what David does. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. That's the truth. Whether or not David feels it, right? The the truth of the matter is, as a believer, the Lord is his light and his salvation. The opposite of light is what? Darkness. He says, I can see, I can follow. No matter how bad it is, I have a light. And not only that, the Lord is my salvation. I'm not going to fear anybody or anything. There are some good things to fear, but when it comes to things of this world, you don't have to fear that. You need to preach the truth to yourself. Romans chapter 12, you know this verse well. Paul talking to the Romans, he says, I appeal to you, Roman church, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God, God who's been so kind to you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on to describe what that is. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your, your thinker, your mind, I can tell you right now that there's a spiritual battle for your mind in this very second. Because as I'm talking and sharing God's word, your thinker, because it's busted, is going a completely different direction. You're tempted to be distracted. You're tempted to yawn and move on. You're tempted to feel like, okay, I've heard this before. I get it. I I understand. Let's move on to the next thing. You're tempted to think about lunch. You're tempted to think about whatever it is that's going on in your life because your thinker is busted. You need to preach the truth to yourself when it's going astray. Ephesians chapter 4 Paul says in verse 22 through 24, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your, guess what the word is there? Minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Like guitars, we need to be tuned to the standard of God's word so that our minds are in harmony with the truth. Are you doing that? When you're tempted to be afraid, that's going to be your first stepping stone. Tune your mind to the truth of God's word. Declare that. Embrace that. And in fact, there are some truths that are so good, you need to put them on repeat. On Spotify, when I like a song, I double-click the repeat button to get that number one next to it. You know what that number one does? Plays that same track over and over again. For a few songs, I've done that. You need to do that with God's word. In fact, here are the the songs, the tracks you need to put on repeat in your own heart and mind. The Lord is in total, absolute, perfect control of every single detail in every single person's life, in every single universe that this galaxy holds. There is not a single molecule, not a single atom that exists apart from God's active involvement He's active. He's not a deist God. God didn't start the clock and then leave it alone. God is actively involved and engaged in every single detail of your life, down to the hairs of your head. He knows how many are on your head. You scratch your head, a couple came out. Guess what? He kept track. You brushed your teeth. He knows about your teeth. He knows about the plaque between your teeth. He knows about your gums. He knows about the molecules that make up your body. He knows about your bacteria in your gut. He knows about you as a person intimately. Down to the most insignificant to you details. God knows those things. And you could say to yourself, no matter what the situation is, the Lord is in total control. I have this track in my head that happens most of the time automatically, usually when I'm driving. Some dude in a Camaro cuts me off, and I get upset about that because I drive a Honda Civic, so I don't have any option but to be a defensive driver. I don't have any horsepower. Like, it doesn't go anywhere. I press the gas, and it barely moves. The hamsters just don't go that fast. So even though I know I would like to be an offensive driver, I have to play defense. And so when this guy with the Camaro comes and cuts me off, I, I, I get upset, and then I have to slow down and calm myself down and so say, the Lord's in control. He knows. I can thank God that I didn't crash. I didn't die. I can pray that he gets a ticket, and I ought to do. Say, so Lord, get him. You know what to do. But often, I just put the track on. The Lord's in control. I don't have to be fretting. I don't have to be angry. I have to be fearful. The Lord is in control. You might say to yourself, well, how is that possible, Um, given the fact that there's so much evil in the world? There's so many bad things that happen to good people. um, How is it possible that God is actively involved in every single thing that happens, Pastor Rod? And at the same time, we can be confident that there's a rape happening somewhere, probably right now. There's child abuse. You know, we got the border crisis where people are being put in cages. You got different things that are happening. And we're like, okay, what do we do? God's in control of that? How do you reconcile those two real things that God is perfectly, sovereignly involved in every single minute detail that ever will exist and ever has existed, and that a billion and one bad things are happening in this very single moment? That's a question I'm going to have you wrestle through in your small groups. But I'll tip my hat on this. Spurgeon was asked, Charles Spurgeon, you guys may know him, right? Charles Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? You know what he said? He said, I have no need to reconcile friends. See, because in our minds, there are polar opposites. they are two ends of the spectrum. But in God's mind, they fit harmoniously and beautifully. We have this much ability to think God's thoughts after him. We have what he's given us. We don't have the full undisclosed, or the full disclosure of every single fact in all existence. God has that, like right here, right now. He can think that. You ever have that moment where there's, there's something on the tip of your tongue? Like, oh, I want to say this word. And that word just doesn't come out because on the tip of your tongue, you just can't figure it out. God never has that happen. You ever have a memory where you have a vague recollection of, oh, how did that work out? God never has that happen. God knows the end from the beginning in total clarity, never once skipping a beat, never once having a brain fart. God knows all things perfectly, lucidly, absolutely, infallibly. And when our minds, this three pound mass of fatty tissue in our heads charges God and says, how can you be good and do these things when these things are happening? How is that possible that you're God and you're good? That's like an ant pointing at us and saying, well, why'd you dress this way? Why'd you take a left turn instead of a right turn? You're like, you're an ant. You don't know any better. Shut up. You know, step on it. God doesn't step on us. Praise God. What I'm trying to get to though, is that some of the truths that you need to put on repeat is God is in total control. It might break your brain to think about that. And I kind of want that to happen to you. It's a good thing. But these truths are the kind of truths that are going to give you strength and courage when you're tempted to fear. In fact, the second one you should be thinking about is the Lord is directing my life. The Lord is directing my life. Proverbs sixteen nine says, the heart of a man plans his way. We, we think thoughts and we try to plan our direction. Here's what the text says, though. But the Lord establishes his steps you make plans to go to Berkeley. You make plans to go to, you know, Patrick Henry. You make plans to become an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, a farmer, whatever it is. You make plans, but God's the one who's directing every single step that you make. It goes back to our first point here. The Lord's in total control. The Lord's directing my life. So even though God is sovereign in every single way possible, completely in control, you are still, get this, I don't know how this works, but I'm going to tell you, you're still making meaningful choices in your lives. But they're the choices that God knew you would make, and they're the choices that God wants you to make ultimately because he knows all things are going to bring him glory. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, get this, all things according to the counsel of his will. In the Greek, the the term for all things, get this, here's here's what it means, all things. (laughs) Everything, everything, your steps included. The Lord is directing your life. Not only that, the Lord is going to provide delivery for you. These are, again, tracks to put on your mind that should be on repeat. In fact, let let me say this. I said this last night. Let me say it again. How do you make sure that these tracks are on repeat in your head and heart? Real question. How do you do that? It's one thing to say, well, I should read the Bible every day, and definitely You should. You should read the Bible every day, but how do you make sure that when you're in the middle of a crisis, you don't have your Bible nearby, your battery's on 1%, so you're not going to pull out your phone and pull it out in your text. How do you make sure that the Bible is readily available to you? Starts with an M. Memorize it. That's step, that's only step one, by the way. That's step number one. What's a second step It's also an M? Meditate on it. You memorize it, and then you meditate on it. You think about it. You turn it over in your head when you're, when you're in the shower and you have some free time. You know how sometimes you have profound thoughts in the shower? Put some, put some scripture in your head and heart and let those profound thoughts carry you for the rest of the day. Those are the kind of things that allow stuff like this to take root. The Lord will provide delivery. You could be in the shower thinking about, okay, when, when, when's the last time the Lord delivered me? Well, let's say I woke up today. I didn't die. <laughs> I mean, there's a million different things. The Lord provided delivery. That's what David says here. That's why he's confident. He says, when evildoers uh, assail me, no, verse three, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Why? Because he knows God is the one who's going to deliver him. And finally, he recognizes in the second half of verse three, the Lord is the one who's protecting me. I don't have to fear. The Lord is the one who's deciding every single step of my life. He's the one who I know. will, one way or another, make sure that I arrive home safely. And here's what that doesn't mean. Here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that you're not going to go outside these doors, get hit by a car, and perhaps die. Doesn't mean, as in the case of my son this last Friday, doesn't mean you may get an appendicitis, which we thought it was. It wasn't. Praise God. We're happy for that. But we were in in the ER all day. Did I shake my fist at God and say, God, I'm a pastor. Why would you do this to me? Why not to waste all this time and all this money in an ER having to get my son checked out for an appendicitis? I didn't shake my fist at God. I knew this is part of being in life. The promises of God to be your protector are not that you're never going to experience pain and heartache and, uh, you know, a broken life and a broken body. The promises refer rather to the totality of God's care and provision for your life. Namely, when you die, if you do die for God's service and God's sake, that means you, you know where you're going. Paul said this, I love it. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by what, fill in the blank, by death. You want to know what it feels like to be bold and confident. The second you're no longer afraid of your life, you can now be free to do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want because you're not afraid to die. What else has the enemy against you? If you're not afraid to die, you're not afraid to suffer reproach for the name of Christ, you can do whatever you want and be totally confident that God's going to take care of you. those are tracks to put on repeat, tracks to keep in your mind. David says, not only do I want to keep these tracks in mind, but let me also show you this. This is awesome, guys. Listen to this next verse here. Psalm 27, verse 4. Here's how he takes all the the nervous energy that he has, the fear. He doesn't doesn't just cower. He doesn't just do some push-ups. Here's what he does. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Pop quiz. Pop quiz. What is the house of the Lord in David's time? (laughs) There was no temple at this point. Remember, his son Solomon is the one who built it. So at this point, we're still looking at a tabernacle. David is saying, I want to draw near to you in your temple, your tabernacle. He says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, his dwelling place. Now, let me just pause for a second and just point this out. Okay, so do you see the, the second to last line there? He says, what I want to do with my life is to what? Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Okay, pop quiz. Pop quiz. What kind of man was David? Was he that kind of, that kind of flowery dude who would just write poetry in the field and smell flowers? Was he dancing in the moonlight? This is not, this is not a girly man. This is a man's man. He's a giant slayer. The dude stood up to, man, to people twice his height. He was king. I mean, this dude was a man's man, had dirty hands, probably had fingernails. They had dirt underneath them. He was picking up sheep poop. He did say he wrestled lions and bears. I mean, he just did it all. And his chief overarching goal, he says, the one thing in my life that I most desire, especially when I'm afraid, is to seek after you, God. And not only that, but to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Is that your heart? Is that what you feel? Or is God simply a mere abstraction? A theoretical idea that you have to pay homage to. That's not, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God David knew. He said, the God that I know is the one who cares deeply, the one I want to seek after, the one who is infinitely worthy of all my attention and affection. Why? Because in verse 5, he says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David recognizes that the Lord that he, he, he doesn't see him as an abstraction. He says, I draw near to you and I feel safe. I know that when I'm closest to you, God, I am safest with you. No matter what happens to me physically, that's what you need to do. When you're afraid, when you're scared, you need to turn your energy to pursuing God. When you're scared. <laughs> there are times in my life when I've been so terrified. So, I mean, whatever, a heightened emotional state. Those are the times that I most, most drew near to God. And really the point of that really is to capitalize on that. Don't waste your breakups. Don't waste your fear. Don't waste your heightened emotional state Draw near to God. In fact, that's my first sub point there. That's what you need to do. Draw near you read in, in James. He says, draw near to God. And what will God do? Draw near to you, draw near to you. Again, I want to point out the fact that David writes something that is one of those beautiful verses in the Old Testament. And for for most of us, that's not not what we feel. You might see God as a a, a mere transaction. God, I'll obey you and you bless my life. God, I'll attend Sunday service and you do what you're supposed to do. You think about praying and you think, man, I don't want to pray. That's boring. That's hard. That's because you don't know God. The God that David knows is a God who's personal and real, a God that you can experience, not by mere cognition. You're not just thinking intellectual thoughts about God. You're experiencing God in real profound ways. That's what he's saying. I draw near to God and I want to gaze upon his beauty. One author wrote, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. God is the highest good. Do you ever get excited? Or I I know some people are into art. Okay, Some people look at art and they're like, oh, that's amazing. You're know, you moved. That doesn't happen for me very often. But I'll tell you what does put that kind of sense of awe in me and why I say wow all the time. (laughs) I'll look at, according to Matt Fabares, I look at creation. Creation does that for me. You ever look at, I mean, a tree or a bird or, I mean, just a, a rock. I mean, I can look at creation and say, wow. You're not surprised by that word, right? (laughs) I can look at that and say, wow, God is awesome. Inside, I start to worship. It's it's an inclination mind. I don't know what that does for you. Um, But when I see that, I recognize, man, God made that. God, a personal and real creator, made that. His infinite mind designed these things. Jonathan Edwards says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. You look at creation, you you get awe-inspired. David says, you could take that same mentality and apply that to looking, beholding God and all this complexity and his wonders and say, wow, that would be right. In fact, he goes so far as to say, he says, better than fathers and mothers, better than husbands and wives, better than children or the company of any or all earthly friends. He says, God beholding the beauty of God is better than any pleasure in this entire life. Which is why the psalmist often say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not think and understand, that's a part of it. But he says, taste and see, experience the God of the Bible. John Edwards the network says, he's better than your father and your mother. How many of you guys love your father and mother? John the network says, he's better than that. Hopefully everyone raises their hands. John the network says, he's better than that. Psalmist was he's better than that. He goes on to say that all the pleasures of life, he says these are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. All the pleasures of life. He says, These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Let me put a book on your reading list. I would love for you to read The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. If you haven't read it yet, please read it. If you have read it already, read it again. I promise you it will probably blow your mind. Don't agree with everything Tozer says, but a lot of what he says I love resonates deeply. When you're afraid, turn your energy to pursuing God by drawing near to him, drawing near to him. And as I said already, really you're studying God. You're studying the complexity of God in order to see. David says, I want to gaze upon your beauty and to inquire in his temple. The word inquire can also be translated meditate. I want to think about God so that I can inquire about him. I can think about him. I want to learn about him and draw near to him here's the danger of being a Christian and having access to all of the wonderful teaching that you have. It's that by mere thoughts, you think knowing about someone makes you know them. For instance, my kids are into baseball, right? You guys know that. I hate baseball. Kids are into it. Um, My sons are now starting to memorize things about the players, like, oh, what's their ERA and what's their batting average? And so I found out the other day that Trout, I don't know if this is still true, I know this stuff changes all the time, but Trout has a batting average of 299, so just under 300. Now, which means I guess he hits it three out of 10 times. Seems pretty lame to me if you ask me. I can hit the ball more than that. <laughs> but they're memorizing facts about Trout, and this guy, and that guy, and all sorts of stuff that I don't even care about. But I'm thinking, <laughs> you might feel like after memorizing all the stats about this guy that you know them. You're like you, I know Trout. He's 299, this and that, and an ERA of whatever. <laughs> But just because you know about them doesn't mean you know them. If we invite a trout to a barbecue, like there's going to be a lot of stuff to discover about him because he's still a human being. He's a person with a lot of complexity. And the same thing is true about God. You might know about God's omniscience. You might know about God's creative ability. You might know about God's glory and splendor, but you only know about it. Right? You know the difference? I know about that. I don't know it personally. Have you met God personally? Have you experienced God in a way that is beyond just understanding about him and instead knowing who he is? That's the difference, guys. So often what I'm doing here, when I, bring, when I bring you a sermon, I'm cooking a meal. Like I'm, you know, sides and a main course, and I'm trying to give you stuff that tastes good and makes sense for you. I'm preparing a meal just for you. I spend all week doing that. I start on Tuesday. I start studying Tuesday, and by the time Saturday rolls around, all, you know, full, full forward. But there's a difference between me cooking you a meal and saying, here's what you need to know and you being able to go home and make your own meal. A lot of y'all, you come here and you get a, I hope it is a decent meal, but you go home and you make top ramen for yourself. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. You got to learn to follow the chef, follow me now, follow the chef and learn how to cook your own meal so that when you go home, you can feast on the glory of God by yourself without having to be dependent upon me to do this for you. You're always going to have pastors in your life, I hope, but that means what we're doing here is trying to lead you to say, this is how you need to feed yourself when you go home do that by meditating on God, on God by saying, I want to I meditate and memorize in order to see you, Lord. When's the last time you prayed to God? God, help me see you. When you're afraid, God, show me your glory. Do what Moses did. God, I want to see you. I want to know you. I think God honors those prayers. When God answers, when God delivers you from your fear or whatever it is, like him, here's what you need to do. He says, and now my head shall be lifted up in verse 6 above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Man, one of, my, one of the coolest experiences I have as a pastor was at Revival just a couple weeks ago. During one of the worship sessions, I don't know what it was or, or what, when it was happening. I just remember that I was there. I was in the back and I was looking at you guys and a lot of you, not everybody, but a lot of you were worshiping God with freedom. Like, you weren't concerned about what you looked like at that point in time. You weren't concerned about what your voice sounded like. You weren't concerned about whether or not the guitarist was playing an E or a G or whatever else. You were focused on what mattered most. You were intent and looking at God and trying to, as far as I can tell, behold his glory in worship and saying, God, you're worthy of it. I don't want to play games with you right now. You're the Lord. I am not. You're the the creator. I'm the creature. You deserve all honor, glory, power, and praise. That was awesome. But what often happens when you come down from the mountain is you get back in the church, you get back into the grind of things, and you take a step back. It's like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. The band doesn't sound as good. There's less lights. There's no fog. There's no, you know, the, the slides don't move anymore. I'm good. Don't do that. Don't do that. See, here's the difference between the revival of the camp and revival in real life. Revival of the camp is awesome. People got saved and we're stoked about that. But you want to know what revival in real life looks like? It looks like we don't care what it sounds like. We're worshiping Jesus because Jesus is worth it. We're not worshiping a figment of our imagination. We're worshiping the man, the Christ, the Lord. Because we know that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our what? And? Amen. That's the one that we serve in worship. That's the one that, no when, when, matter what's happening, we can say, we worship you, God. When we're afraid, we worship you. When we're happy, we worship you. When the music sounds good, we worship you. When the music sounds bad, we worship you. It doesn't matter at this point. And that's what fear does for us. That's a benefit of fear. It crystallizes what's important. David says, when you deliver me, I'm going to give you shouts of joy, not sterile, buttoned-down, well, I guess you deserve something, God, so let me just you know, reverently bow before you, and we're good how's your worship doing? How's your worship doing? Maybe you need some fear in your life to draw you near to God. And our worship is cold and sterile. It shows that we don't understand who God is. God is merely just a concept, an imagination. Take control of your thoughts. Push yourself toward God. That's what fear helps us do. Verses 7 through 12, here's what you need to expect though. Things aren't always going to go so easy. Look at verses 7 and 8. Let's read through these next few verses together. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. That's awesome. You need to memorize that. Write that down. You need to use that. Number nine, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Do you notice what's happening here? I think David is giving voice to something that's going to happen to you. You have, you have confidence in God. You're declaring God's goodness and grace, but yet your fear gives room for the door to be open, for doubt to creep in. And that's what David is expressing here. David takes his doubt, levels it at God and says, God, please don't turn me away. Oh God, you've been my help. Don't cast me off. Don't forsake me, God. Oh God of my salvation. My mom and dad, they're gone, but I know you, Lord, will take me in. There's, a, there's an ebb and flow to David's prayer here. It's a confident prayer, but then he says, Lord, I also know at the same time, I don't want you to do this. Please don't help me. Don't, I mean, don't, don't leave me alone. I need you to help me. And then he says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies, who are also God's enemies. Give me not up to the, to the will of my adversaries because false witnesses have risen against me. They be lying on me, Lord, and they breathe out violence. God, help me. God, deliver me. When fear creeps in, here's what you also need to expect. Doubt's going to come along with it. They're BFFs. They're going to be together. Fear comes first. Doubt comes after. It's just like it's just like rain in the clouds. It's going to happen. Sunshine, sunset. You got fear and you got doubt. They're going to be there together. And what you need to know about that is that fear and doubt are terrible when you let them take over your heart and your mind. I went to Legoland a couple years ago and my son... Uh, one of my sons, I won't tell you who, you'll find out soon, um, is kind of skittish. He can be a little scared of things that are just intimidating. I mean, he's heights and all sorts of things. So, so like a good dad, I, I made him get on a roller coaster with me. <laughs> he, he was terrified. I said, You're going to do this with this. It's going to be great. You're going to love it, son. You're going to have a phenomenal time. And he, he didn't want to. Um, he required a little more cajoling as we got closer to the, to the on ramp. He said, Dad, I don't want to go on. Please don't make me oh, Come on, son. It'll be great. It'll be great. And as a result of that event, I got one of the best pictures of my life. I love it. I'm never going to get rid of it. I'm going I'm to put this loud and proud at his wedding. I've already promised him that. Take a look. <laughs> like, we're having a great time. Well, I mean, I'm having a great time, clearly. But poor Adam, like, he is, his face is falling off. He's just like, get me, get me off of this ride. The guy is skittish. That's just kind of in his nature. I'm trying to work with him on that. But as we... I mean, fear stole the good experience from him. Do you see that? His fear stole the experience of an awesome ride in front of him. Last year, we went to Palm Springs, and in Palm Springs, there's something called the Aerial Tramway. You know what that is? It takes you up the San Jacinto Mountain. So you start at, uh, at ground level. Um, so let's just use zero feet for easy, you know, easy math here. And then you go up 8,500 feet to the, to the top of Mount San Jacinto, and then there's hot tra- tra- trails and hiking. And even if it's like 110 on the ground, it's like 60, 70 degrees on the mountains. Awesome. So what you don't know is that they're super expensive to get on. Like the tramway itself is pricey. So it's like 20 bucks a person. So we go as a family thinking, this is going to be great. Let's all go together on the aerial tramway. Of course, then one of my sons, I won't tell you who, (laughs) he didn't like the idea. He liked it at first anyway. He liked it at first until we got to the base of the tramway and he realized how high the thing goes. And then he also realized, oh, this tramway is only held up by wires and there's five different posts along the way. And so the tramway, what it does is it climbs, it ascends the wires, and then it goes over the posts and it swings back and forth. And if things weren't worse, things, to make matters worse, the tram also spins in, in the 360 as it goes up. It's trying to give you the view, right? It's trying to help make things good for you. So we're at the base of the mountain, ready to go up. And my son is, of course, terrified. And he's like, "Nah, don't, don't make me do this. Don't make me do this. He's crying. And now he's making a scene. We just dropped like 80 or 90 bucks to get on this thing. And like, there's no way back at this point. So I chose. So there was a choice between being a good dad and not being a good dad and making him go. So I chose not being a good dad. I mean, I'm good with us. I'm like, we're, 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 we spent money. We're going to do this. It's going to be great. And so I try to say, son, this is going to be awesome. You're going to love it. You're going to get to see all the mountains. It's glorious. It's awesome. We go on the tram. And of course, he's still terrified. Now, poor guy, he's, he's clinging to like the base of the tram the entire time. His head is on it. He's just holding onto it for dear life, just trying not to die, I guess and we made it all the way up to the mountain. When he was up there, he was fine. He loved it, he had a great time. Going down, he was a little better. But again, fear and doubt stole from him one of the most awesome experiences that we've had. Being able to see the tram, I and mean, we went up the mountain, it was terrifying. It was scary. But looking around the glory of God's creation, it was beautiful. Fear stole that from him. Fear and doubt are enemies when they distort and destroy our vision so that we can't see what God is doing in our lives. Here's what we need to do. Christians need to learn to endure through doubt. In 1 Peter chapter 1, when we went through 1 Peter, we learned about a verse that says, it is the tested genuineness of our faith that is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that is found to result in praise and glory and honor. Your faith will be tested by God. It's a gift of God to help you grow and mature. If you want to grow your muscles, you're going to go to the gym and you better lift heavy weights. It's going to hurt and the next day your muscles are going to be sore but that's what it looks like to grow your muscles. Your faith is not very different. If you want to grow your faith muscles, God's going to stretch you and push you like a good coach. He's going to push you to the brink of your faith muscles ability so that they hurt and they're strained and you're crying about it. But at the end of that process, what God does to your faith is strengthen you and make you spiritually yoked. Christians learn to endure through doubt. In Matthew chapter four, do you remember when Jesus was driven into the wilderness? Okay. Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You remember that situation? Pop quiz. Who drove him into the wilderness? Spirit Spirit of God. Thank you. Spirit of God. The spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The third person of the Trinity, God said, you're going to go get tested now. 40 days later, when Jesus was starving and hungry, he has an encounter with the devil. The devil tries to make him sin. And of course, you know, Jesus wins. But if he's willing to do that for the son of God, Is He not willing to do that for us who are lowercase s sons and daughters of God? Christians learn to endure through doubt. There's that passage there. Number two, Christians also bring their doubt to God first. You you saw David do this, and I love it. David, instead of leveling it at his friends or just kind of creating distance between him and God, he brings his doubt to God first and foremost. He says, God, don't don't abandon me. God, don't leave me here. God, help me. God, I'm trusting you. I know you can do this, God. God, hide not your face from me. When do you do that? Sometimes I hear from you guys and you're telling me about your fears and your doubts and I'm like, have you talked to God like this? You're talking to me like I'm a human being who can understand and sympathize with you. Have you talked to God this way? Sometimes our prayers are so sterile and so cold and so impersonal that I wonder, do you know the God that you're talking to? Because God is willing to hear you. It's not that you shake your fist at God and tell him, God, you're meanie and I don't like you. It's telling God, God, here's my real, authentic, genuine heart. I'm not playing games with you. I don't want to play games, but here's what I'm going through. God, can you please help? I know you're there. I know you're there, God. I may not see you. I may not hear you, but I know you're there. Please help me, God. When's the last time you've done that? Bring your fear to and your doubt to God first instead of listening to to merely sad music or turning to your surfing or turning to, you know, Xbox and trying to alleviate your fears and doubts by just drowning them out with entertainment. Those things are fine in, 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 in their own proportions, but they cannot replace God's role in your life when it comes to expressing fear and doubt. And also number C, letter C, Christians douse their doubt with God's word. This goes really back to number one, as we talked about earlier. It's learning to take God's word and letting that be the anchor of our soul to say, God, this is what I need to do with my life. This is how I need to think. I'm taking control of your thoughts and saying, God, I'm not willing to let my fear and doubt disable my walk with you. So I'm gonna train myself to think your thoughts after you. I'm gonna train myself to know your word, to love it so much. I'm willing to to live by it. You remember the the narrative of Gideon? God calls Gideon the judge. He's a jerk kind of person. But God calls him anyway. And he says, okay, now I'm going to use you to deliver your people. And so he brings this massive army, Gideon does. And then what does God say to Gideon? He says, I want you to pare down your army from, let's take it from 30,000 to 300. Gideon, of course, I'm sure, doubts God. Says Gideon... uh, says, blessed are those who have not seen and believe. That's what J- Jesus said to Thomas. Gideon had that experience. He doubted God and God said, here, let me prove to you that I am with you. And so he allows Gideon to go down to the enemy camp, the Midianites, and he hears them talking He said, I had a dream and this bread thing rolled in the camp and crushed us. And they're like, oh man, that's got to be Gideon. Gideon's going to crush us too. Gideon takes heart by that. And then he goes and does what God wants him to do we might ask ourselves, why doesn't God do what he did for Gideon? I put a fleece out the other day and God didn't answer the fleece. I put my cat out and God took my cat away. You know, Good for you. That, why doesn't God answer me the way he talked to Gideon? Why doesn't God do for me when he did for Thomas? Didn't Thomas say, I'm never going to believe unless I put my hands in his side," And then Jesus shows up and says, Hey, put your hand on my side. Why doesn't Jesus do that for me now? Because you have something better than the physical Jesus in this place. You have something better. You have God's revealed word. This is what Peter said. He said, we have something more sure than the vision we had on the mountain. When Jesus was transfigured before them, he said, we have something more sure. The word of God. Douse your doubts with God's word. Let's do this last one really quickly here. I believe, David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I want you to notice this. Again, this is another awesome situation where you realize that David has not been delivered. See this? I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. That is, God's going to deliver me. Uh, Wait for the Lord. He's talking to us now. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David has not been delivered in this psalm. He's merely saying, guys, I know, I know what this sounds like, uh, but you need to trust God and follow him. Wait patiently. Number four, express confidence in God's future salvation. It's coming. We know it's coming. We just have to be patient while, it, while we wait for it. That's the hard part. It's our faith talking to our fear. It's being able to say fear bows to faith when our faith bows to God. It's looking at God and saying, God, I I know I can't see what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. I'm terrified of this situation, but I trust you. God, please help me to follow you. And let me say that. Let me sing that. Let me tell people about that to wait on you, to know that between my faith and my delivery, there's tension in that middle space there. And I'm okay with that. It's what God wants for us. That's how God grows us to express our confidence in that. Do Do you believe it that after all this time that I still come up in front of you, I still get I still get scared to come up here. Do you know that? I still get scared when I go and do announcements in the main sanctuary. Just, just announcements. Talking about like Navmo and you know men's Bible study. I still get afraid to do that. I heard of a famous evangelist who said he still gets afraid every time he approaches someone to share the gospel with him. You see, guys, part of the Christian experience is to know that fear is coming for us but we don't let our fear paralyze us and disable us. We allow fear to have its good work in us, which is to push more deeper and stronger faith. Your fear will bow to your faith when your faith bows to God, trusting him and obeying him no matter how bad it gets. Let's pray.